Jesus, his encounter with the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, it's how season one ended. So I'm really glad that most of your hands went up because you're going to sort of have a visual as we look at John chapter 4. So if you can open your Bibles there, John chapter 4. Things were getting a little uh, hot around Jerusalem in Jesus' earthly ministry at this point in John 4. And he knew it wasn't his time yet. And so he, in uh, his providence, um, had a divine appointment with a, a woman at a well in Samaria. So he heads north. Um, let's read John chapter 4, and then I'll read 1 through 3. It says, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, it says that he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And so, um, just real quick, Jesus never had a plan B. It wasn't like, you know, these guys are getting really worked up in Jerusalem and they might try to kill me or cause some problems, so let, let's go ahead and get out of here and go north to Galilee. No, this was God's plan the whole time. God wasn't forced to a plan B here. He knew where he was going, and he had a divine appointment with a Samaritan woman. And so this is probably a familiar story, especially since most of you have seen The Chosen. But I, I really hope what, I, what my prayer is today is that we would really glean some, some ideas, especially about the subject of worship. So we're going to talk a lot about worship this morning. Um, Alistair Begg said this, one of my favorite Scottish preachers uh, that's alive. He said, Worship is the constant activity of heaven, and it is the chief business of the church here on earth. So right here at the onset, the heart of the message today is God desires your and my worship, our heartfelt worship. So we're going to we're going to talk about a lot of stuff we'll talk about today. It'll probably be more by way of reminder because you're, you're taught very well here. But I really want to encourage you um, in the area of worship, which is what God seeks. So our first point, and I don't know if this is going to be up on the screen, the context of Christ's encounter with the Samaritan woman. So the fastest route from uh, Judea to Galilee was through Samaria. However, strict Jews would often take the long way around rather than going straight through Samaria. So I'm going to come down here. Can we put the map up? I asked Grant if he had a pointer. It must be old school because you know th these have uses other than just cats. <laughs> but if you notice here, oh, and it doesn't work on the screen, so... A lot of good this is doing me here today. All right. Normally, um, the, the fastest route from where Jerusalem is, where the arrow starts, to Galilee is more of a straight line, right? But strict Jews would have nothing to do with Samaritans, and I'm going to unpack that in a minute. So a, a strict Orthodox Jew would either cross the Jordan and go up the east side to Galilee, 
or some would go all the way to the coast and go around it so they would not go through Samaria so why such a disdain for Samaritans that they wouldn't want to have anything to do with them that they would want to avoid them well I have to go into a little bit of Israel's history to be able to to really unpack that Uh, Samaria was made up of the northern tribes in Israel early on in Israel Israel's history and at a lot of points the southern kingdom of Judea and like um, Benjamin would would be separated from the northern tribes and they wouldn't have anything to do with each other and they often fought Um, well along came one of the northern kingdom Israel's kings was named Jeroboam and he started getting nervous because his people uh, in those northern tribes were going down to Jerusalem every year for the various feasts And, and he really was seeing them becoming more loyal to Judah than to him and his kingship so he got really nervous and so he tried to he he took what a lot of people do when things aren't going the way they want them to go he took matters into his own hands and he uh sort of basically said we're going to have our own religion here jerusalem isn't that appointment that important we're going to have our worship here at at the mountain here uh we're going to have our own worship they believed in the first five books the pentateuch of the bible But he created his own version of Judaism, and this really upset the Lord. And so God disciplined Jeroboam and the northern tribes by having the Assyrians, who were the the bad boys at that time, come down from Assyria. They invaded and they conquered the northern tribes. Again, not Judah, but the northern tribes. And one of the brutal vicious things that conquering nations would do back then is when they conquered a nation they did not want to have that nation there anymore so they would bring in other peoples from other nations they conquered and they would settle them there and what would happen they would intermarry and thus he would wipe out the purity of the race well that's exactly what the king of Assyria did and he brought in other peoples and so here you have Jewish people that were intermingling with people from all kinds of nations and so they were like half Jew half Gentile and because they were half Jew half Gentile they were hated they were hated by the Jews because they were half Gentile and they were hated by the Gentiles because they were half Jews and so let's fast forward now to John chapter 4 Now we have Jews who didn't want anything to do with these people that were neither fully Jew or fully Gentile, and they would avoid them at all costs. So Jesus breaks all the rules, and he goes, we're going to go straight through. We're going to head straight up via Samaria, and it probably made a couple of his disciples nervous. But they ended up uh, near the slope of Mount Ebal, which is where King Jeroboam said worship is really to take place and not in Jerusalem. This happened to be the site of Joseph's tomb where Jacob gave him a plot of land near a town called Sychar. So that sort of gives you the background of what's going on. Now they get there and they get to Jacob's well. And verse 6 says that Jesus was wearied from his long journey. Can you read that there in verse 6? 
Let me read that. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. It was about 12 noon. It was probably hot in an arid land, <clears throat> and Jesus, showing his humanity, was hot, and he was tired, and he was thirsty. So the stage is set now for his divine encounter with the Samaritan woman, and it brings us to our second point the focus of Christ's encounter with a Samaritan woman. So a woman, she comes there every day. She comes to draw water, <clears throat> and Jesus asks her for a drink. No big deal, right? Wrong. Jesus breaks two rabbinical traditions right here. Taboo number one, he's encountering and talking to a Samaritan. Number two, he's talking to a Samaritan woman. That's two no-nos. And so the Samaritan woman knows this. So in verse 9, knowing that Jesus is breaking protocol, ask him what he's doing, speaking to her, and asking her for water from the well. <clears throat> then Jesus says that if she knew who she was talking to, um, she would ask for living water that she would never thirst again. So she's missing what Jesus is saying here. <clears throat> and uh, so she's thinking, okay, if some kind of water will never thirst again. She goes, well, I want some of that. I don't like the mile and a half hike here every day. And it's like, whew, you ever talk to somebody and you try to talk spiritual, it just whew, goes right, that, that's what was going on here. And then in verse 16 through 18, Jesus, what I, what I wrote here is, is setting her up. Let's look at 16 through 18. And Jesus said to her, go call your husband to come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right saying I have no husband, uh, for you have five husbands. And the one with you now the one you now have is not your husband. And so what you've said is true. All right, so he basically sets her up. And then she does what a lot of people do at this point when they become very uncomfortable. They change the subject and she starts talking about religion. You ever had that where you're talking to somebody and they're a little comfortable? <clears throat> I mean, I can't tell you how many times that like I've been on a plane and Somebody next to me is talking, and, you know, I'm praying for God to maybe open up a door where I can share the gospel with this particular person. And <clears throat> they might talk for, I mean, I've had legs where it's been like three hours. Um, and, but I was talking to this one person about 20 minutes, and then that person says, but by the way, what do you do? And I go, uh, well, I'm a pastor. They're all She's very uncomfortable. Jesus just told her all about herself, and she gets really uncomfortable. So she starts talking about the difference between the Jews and the Samaritan faith. She starts talking about where, you know, the argument is where we should worship in Jerusalem or in Mount Ebal. But you've got to understand the background is the Samaritans still had the Jew. They were still hoping for a Messiah. They still believed in the in at least the first five books of the Bible, so they had a lot of things in common. 
Which brings us now to where we're really going to spend our time, verses 21 through 26, our main point. Let's look at 21 and 22. So she's talking about, well, you Jews say you worship here, and we say we worship here. And Jesus just cuts through it in uh, verse 21 and 22 of chapter 4. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem you will worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Now listen what Jesus says here. Very important. But the hour is coming, and now is here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Wow. 23a, the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Here's what Jesus was saying. He's saying, you know the old system of worship? and You know the debate of the who, what, when, where, how? That's all over with, with the arrival of me. The old sacrificial location kind of worship is now obsolete because there's going to be a new covenant. I heard your pastor preach a very good sermon on the new covenant, so you all get what the new covenant is. He said, there's a new covenant, and I'm here. It's no longer going to be Jew or Samaritan, but it's going to be Jew, Samaritan, Gentile, slave, barbarian, Scythian, free. All people from all languages over the whole world now are going to worship God. Things are changing. It's no longer a place, but it's wherever God's people dwell. Wherever the Spirit of God dwells, there'll be worship. And he says, and the Father seeks those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Both. Let's talk about that. I'll call it balanced worship. Okay? Um, Balanced worship is based on Scripture. One, if you're a note taker. Two, engages the mind. And then three flows from the gospel. There's a lot of what is labeled worship out there that's very different than what God prescribes here. So what are we talking about with spirit and in truth? Well, you get on one hand all excitement and I think Beg says we blow up and then we can just get all joyless doctrine here and we dry up. But when we have the balance of, of spirit and in truth, we grow up. When we have Christocentric preaching, when we have gospel preaching, which by the way, folks, I know you know this. This is why this is your church. You have that here. That's not so in a lot of places out there more than not. When you have expositional, Christ-centered, good doctrinal preaching, you have what? Truth. 
And, and, and when you have real truth, then guess what? It's okay to get excited. Even for those of you who have a Baptist background. It's okay. It's okay, man. I'm with Gary, man. Let's, you know, some of you like that makes you uncomfortable. That's fine. Jesus isn't prescribing. He goes, there are going to be a people who are going to worship you based on truth. And when we have truth, that's when we get excited. It's easy to get excited, wouldn't you agree? You know, we've lived in Indiana now for 28 years, Carol. It's about 28 now. Um, you know, we're down in southern Indiana, down near Lawrence County, and, and I remember walking along, and the guy's talking about Damon Bailey, for those of you who remember him. And, you know, I'm going, who's he? He goes, don't say that. You could get hurt around here. <laughs> but it's, it's easy to get excited, right? I mean, you get a basketball game or a good, when Colts were doing real good. I mean, I can jump really high in our living room when, when you know, Manning was there and, you know, he would connect. We can get excited, right? But, but what this is talking about is the balance, that we get excited, but it's based on truth super important. That's what the Father seeks. You want to know what today's Father's Day, but Gary talked about the Heavenly Father in our devotional before earlier with the whole worship team today. You want to know what the Father seeks from you and I? Worship. He wants your heart. He doesn't want you part-time He's a jealous God. He wants all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, and all of your strength. And he desires your worship, and by the way, deserves your worship. Remember last time, for those of you who are here, we talked about the four G's, and the first G was to glorify God. You and I, as I said back then, were made for God's glory. God didn't create us to have a happy, problem-free life. God created us for his glory. And one of the the primary ways we glorify God is to proclaim his greatness and worship him. Not just Sundays, but 24 hours, seven days a week. And and here's our problem. Our problem isn't you're in my problem, and I'm including myself. Let me get a drink here. You know what you're in my problem is? It isn't that we don't worship. Because we're hardwired for worship. You know what our problem is? What we worship. You see, because there's a battle, as, as John Calvin said, our hearts are idol factories. And there's a battle for the lordship of your and my hearts. And only Christ, and only God, deserves to be there, but yet it competes all the time for something or someone else, a situation, a person, a job, who I don't know, that competes for your heart. And, and, and your theological God, I believe you're here, is, is the God of the Bible, but often our functional God is something or someone else. It's called idols of the heart. We're going to talk more about that here in a little while. I do a lot of biblical counseling. I've done it for a lot of years. And it's really the main heart of biblical counseling is we we get to, with all gathering data, what's competing for your heart. Because I guarantee you, your problem comes from something is 
getting some throne time in your heart that's not God. It's something or someone else. And once we find that and God the Holy Spirit convicts, there's great progress in biblical counseling. God wants our hearts, folks. And so the problem isn't that we don't worship. We worship all the time. It's just what we worship. And God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in in spirit and truth. So let's get back to the subject of worship. There is a way to worship and there is a way not to worship. And I'm not talking about style, right? Uh, We're back in southern Indiana. I still, sorry if you like southern gospel, ugh, I don't. But there's some pretty good lyrics in there, and there's some, some good and bad theology. And, and yet I've seen a good worship team before where it's all about show. See, God looks at our hearts. And so we're not talking about style. And, and God's given us some clear instruction in Scripture of what he requires in worship. It was, you know, you read some of the torturous stuff in the Old Testament, and there was lampstands and this and that, but, but God's really sort of laying out the pattern for worship. In the Old Testament, and now, and the hour has come, Jesus said, where the Father seeks those who will worship in spirit and truth. So we're not talking about style here. We're talking about the heart of the worshiper. God seeks your and my heart. Not, not, yes, on Sunday morning, absolutely, but the whole week long. And then Jesus in 25 and 26, as he gets through this, and we'll get back to this other thing in a minute, he breaks out of character after he tells her everything about herself. And in verse 25 and 26, he does something that he hasn't done to this point in his ministry very much. He reveals to her who he is. Look at verse 25 and 26. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. Remember, Samaritans were hoping in the Messiah as well. He was called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. Listen to this. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Imagine her jaw just dropping. Not, not just a prophet, not a really good teacher, not a popular Jew. I who speak to you am he. She's encountered the living God. Which leads us to our third point, the fruit of Christ's encounter with a Samaritan woman. So she is changed, folks. I don't want you to miss that. And she even leaves her jar there, 28 and 29, and heads back, probably runs back to town. And she says, come and see a man who's told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? little context here. This was a lady who had a reputation. So she doesn't run into town, especially in that culture, and start telling him what to do. Listen, I found the Messiah, and here's what you need to do. No, she runs back in. She says, Listen, I've just met a guy who's told me all about myself. And then she's really wise. She goes to the, probably the men. She goes, could this be the Christ? And they're all, huh, yeah, I don't know. We'll have to go check that out ourselves. She's smart. She's wise. 
And so she gets their attention, and they head out to figure things out for themselves. And then 39 through 42, uh, the Samaritans do come, and many believe because of her testimony, but many believe because of their encounter with Christ. Now, I'm going to give you a really important point in my message now. And there's nothing new under the sun. I got this point from John Piper like a long, long, long time ago from his book, Let the Nations Be Glad. Anybody ever heard of the book, Let the Nations Be Glad? It's it's one very good, very good in the back. I see those hands now. Here we go. If you don't get anything else today, get this. The worship of God should be the catalyst for evangelism and world missions. Just chewing that just for a second. I'm going to say it again. The worship of God, which is what God seeks, right? Should be the fuel or the catalyst for reaching the world for Christ. They're not evangelism and worship. They're evangelism and worship. Okay, I'm going to unpack that for you now. What did he tell the Samaritan woman at the well? The father seeks Worshippers, right? And, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. So what did she do? How did she respond? She went out and got more worshipers. Which is what the Father seeks. Wow. There's a reason when you were born again that God didn't take you immediately to be with him. We know from Ephesians 2, 8, 9, which we quote all the time, we forget the very next verse that says there's some works which he prepared before. I'm getting excited, so I'm tripping over my own words. There's some works which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And one of those primary works is making him known. Do you realize that that's something we won't be able to do in heaven? And so she probably runs back and gets more worshipers. We evangelize so that they may know Christ, so that they may come and fill places like this and worship God, which is what God seeks. So the fuel that should burn in our hearts for your unsaved neighbor, for your unsaved family member, for your unsaved coworker, for the unsaved here in Franklin, and beyond, the the fuel for that that should burn in our hearts is for the glory of God in the worship of his people. Thank you, John Piper, for unpacking God's word and showing that to us. So what's this all mean by way of application? Grant said, if I get you guys out of here earlier than you normally do, nobody will mind. So in conclusion, you know, that's dangerous. In conclusion, yeah, he went another 20 minutes after that in conclusion. A couple points. One, just recapping. If you name the name of Christ today, and Jesus is your Lord and Savior, what the Father seeks from you is heartfelt, undistracted worship. Okay? That's the first point. Uh, Carol got a call, my wife Carol got a call from my daughter Carly this week and I was in the room I, I 
she might have, I don't think she had you on speakerphone, but she was saying, Carly wants to know what to get you for Father's Day. All right. Now, if Carly had brought me a kitten today, I haven't opened, right? But if Carly brought me a kitten today, I would go, sorry, you cat lovers. Just, I'm allergic to them, okay? It's not what I want. But if she brought me some stabilizers for my jacks on my camper to keep it stable, now you're talking. <laughs> I don't know if you got that for me, Carly. <laughs> Hope it's not a cat. The Father seeks those who will worship him in spirit and in truth, and he seeks your and my heartfelt worship. So here's, just begs a question, what is hindering your worship? What's distracting you from worshiping with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, all of your strength, 24 hours a day, seven days a week? You know, one of the things that... Um, I heard, it was, I don't know if it was a message that I heard, but on my mind that, that one of the things that hurts our worship is an inaccurate or incomplete knowledge of who God is. Once you get this, 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 this is also important. One of the things that hinders our worship is we either have an inaccurate view of God or an incomplete view of God. And so one of the pursuits that we're to be about as believers the rest of our lives is, oh God, show me. Show me yourself. Expand my... David says this, and this is out of a devotional, um, but um, let me find it here. David writes this, oh magnify the Lord with me. Now, I think in pictures, sorry, I'm thinking of a big magnifying glass magnify the Lord with me. And how does he end that verse? It's like, whoa, and let us exalt his name together. As we expand our vision of who he is, it's okay to get goosebumps. And that's going to fuel our worship. So it's not like, praise God from whom all blessed things flow. Praise him all. No, it's going to be, Praise God from whom all blessings flow. There's going to be fuel and excitement because the object of our worship has been what? Magnified. So we make it a lifelong pursuit to know him more and we're never going to fully arrive until we, even when we get to heaven, I think we're going to be about that for all eternity. But let me read you this devotional. It's in a form of a prayer. Oh Lord, magnify my vision of you that I may worship you as you've revealed yourself both in nature and in your word. Help me to have right thoughts of you, not the opinions of men or even so-called Christians nor the world. Lord, I know my view of you, my understanding of you is one of the most important things about me. Therefore, God, help me to have insight and knowledge of who you are that I might worship you in spirit and in truth. Lord, in my pursuit of knowing you, bless my study of your word. Open my eyes to understand your many attributes, your unlimited knowledge, power, presence, holiness, grace, mercy, and providence. And may the knowledge of these truths humble me 
and move me to heartfelt worship. May they leave me speechless in my awe of you, O God. Give me that spiritual eyes to see the wonders of who you are that I might worship you. God seeks those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. God seeks your worship. Sorry about this, whoever does housekeeping. Two, if you name the name of Jesus, the Father wants you to be part of his worldwide missions to bring more worshipers into the kingdom of God. So as you go out and wherever God has uniquely providentially placed you, he wants you to be like the woman at the well to say, you've got to come and see this. You've got to know my Savior. I know you all talk about what you're into. You know, I sometimes find myself talking more about sailing or camping than I am about Jesus. See, there's a competition going on for our hearts all the time. But if you're excited about what our brother faithfully, our brothers preach week in and week out here, you've got something to share. You've got something to get excited about. So go and get excited and tell people wherever God has placed you like the Samaritan woman. And we see a, a really neat deal going on here. Um, and I want you to see this. So go back to the text one last time. Look at verse 30. I want you to see this. <clears throat> so she's excited. She drops her jar. She heads back into town. Um, and then verse 30 says, as she goes back in, they went out of town and were coming to him. So she tells them in Sychar, you got to see this guy. They're all leaving town <clears throat> and they're heading up. I think it's a little about a mile, a mile and a quarter, according to my commentary. But they're all heading, and I picture them, if you will, if you'd allow me, heading through a field and heading up toward Jacob's well. Verse 30, see that? And, and Jesus at this time is having a talk with his disciples who were also missing what was going on. They're, they're urging him to eat, and then Jesus starts talking about the harvest. And then look at verse 35b. He goes, look. It's almost like, look up, I tell you. Lift up your eyes and see that the fields are right for the harvest. Now you see the picture? It's, the, the picture I almost see here is he's trying to teach his disciples. She went back there as they're coming through the fields. He's like, look up, lift your heads. The fields are ripe for the harvest. So I'll say it to you. Whether you live in Indy or Franklin or wherever the surrounding towns are here, right? The fields are ripe for the harvest. There's a reason we're not with the Lord right now. There's work which he's appointed for us to do, and we found out what that work is this morning, to make him known, so that there'll be more worshipers into the kingdom of God. Amen? Let's pray.